Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast coming to you today from the U.S.-China Business Council's Forecast 2019 conference in Washington, D.C. Let's hear this gathering of worthies make a little unseemly and undignified noise. <laughs> now, that's what I'm talking about. That is what I'm talking about. The Cynical Podcast is produced in, in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our excellent daily newsletter. And those of you here, you were these... Pony up. Subscribe to this. It's a, it's a fantastic thing. Uh, you can afford it. A personal or a company subscription. Anyway, go to the website, subchina.com. We are confident that you will agree that it is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and joining me here today is, of course, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn of the Tennessee Goldcorns, the man whose antics over the, his two decades in Beijing prompted the creation of a whole new category of crime, picking fights and causing trouble. <laughs> Jeremy, please greet the assembled rapacious capitalists and the good people at home. <laughs> Sorry, that was a very ridiculous one. Hello, rapacious capitalists. <clears throat> Today, we have a very grim discussion about how your companies have spent the last four decades selling the Communist Party the rope with which they're now hanging you. Um, <laughs> but let's not keep everyone waiting with my bad jokes about Lenin, nor should I give anyone the impression that I am not a rapacious capitalist myself. Uh, amazing what living in China and now Tennessee can do to a good socialist boy from Johannesburg. <laughs> we are, anyway, delighted to be joined today by two real luminaries in the world of U.S.-China business. I don't think they need any introduction for the uh, live audience, but for our listeners out there. First, we have Tim Stratford, who is chairman of AmCham China. Tim is managing partner at Covington and Berling LLP's Beijing office and a member of the firm's international trade, corporate, public policy, and government affairs practice groups. He also served as assistant U.S. trade representative at a much happier time in the trade relationship from <laughs> during George W. Bush's second term and first year of the Obama administration. Tim, a very warm welcome to Seneca. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, we're also thrilled to be joined by Craig Allen, who's president of the U.S.-China Business Council and still fairly new to the post, having just taken it up in uh, July of last year, I believe, just six months ago. Uh, Craig has had a long career in the Department of Commerce and in the Foreign Service, uh, with many postings around Asia in the PRC, in Taiwan, in Japan, in Brunei, uh, where he served actually most recently as ambassador before being named to the presidency of the U.S.-China Business Council. So, Craig Allen, welcome to Seneca, and, uh, and thanks for having us here. Thank you, Kaiser. And uh, Craig, uh, Kaiser and I both want to thank you for inviting us here today and for such a generous, kind introduction. It's been a real treat to get to know some of you. So uh, let's kick off here. As we're all aware, a Chinese delegation led by Liu He began talks today here in Washington with a U.S. side led by, of course, Robert Lighthizer and his pugnacious sidekick, Peter Navarro. Uh, it looks like Liu He 
will meet uh, or is actually meeting Trump right now, even as we speak. I understand now, uh, short of clairvoyance, we can't know what's happening and, and what's likely to come of the talks, but maybe you could walk us through uh, some of your thinking on this. Uh, what are the major factors that each side is considering right now? And when you put it all in the balance and compare maybe the hands that each side holds, the cards that each side holds, uh, whose hand is the stronger and, and what sorts of outcomes might we anticipate? Um, maybe we can start with you, Craig. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, I think that uh, these negotiations probably have two core elements. Uh, the first element would be purchases that would have a immediate uh, and hopefully a dramatic effect on the bilateral uh, trade deficit. So that would be purchases by the Chinese, uh, exports from the U.S. Uh, to China of agricultural commodities and, and perhaps uh, energy uh, as well. The second uh, pod of the discussions would be around the so-called structural issues. And I think that those were quite well defined uh, in the 301 submission uh, that the United States Trade Representative Ambassador Lighthizer uh, submitted, uh, which are focused on intellectual property rights, uh, forced technology transfer, uh, market access, and cyber. Uh, related intrusions associated uh, with industrial policy. So two different tracks uh, going on, and hopefully uh, progress was made in both of those tracks. Uh, I, I understand that, uh, Tim, you have sort of a way of approaching this that looks at some of the underlying issues uh, that you, where you think maybe you could expand on what Craig's already said and, and maybe get to the, 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 the root of what you consider to be the... Sure. I think that what the U.S. government ultimately is most concerned about, and I think this is true of the business community, the American business community as, as well, is the economic development model that China has sort of uh, solidified around. Uh, they've always had elements of this, but I think people have felt that it has become a, a, a stronger and determined uh, approach on the part of the Chinese government, uh, and that is to select industry sectors that are very important to China's future and their competitiveness, and then to devote substantial resources of the state behind that. And so you have a kind of uh, state intervention in markets and not just the market forces themselves governing outcomes. And so that creates an economic environment that's very difficult for uh, other companies to compete against, both in the China market, but also in other markets around the world. So the analogy that I use for that is of a game of football, so you imagine yourself going to a football game. On one side of the field, you have the winners of the Super Bowl. And on the other side of the field, you have the winners of the World Cup. And they're both there to play football, but they have a very different conception of what the game is like. If you think about uh, English-style football, uh, people don't wear helmets and shoulder pads and so on. Uh, and because of that, they can move around more quickly. They can be a bit more agile and they can say, take certain risks because they're not afraid of getting tackled and physically injured by someone on the other side. If you look at uh, uh, American style football, people have helmets, they have shoulder pads, and it's a different type of game. So think of a Chinese SOE as an American style football player that's protected. It can receive subsidies. It can receive other protections from the state. And it's competing against say, an American company that's out there to play English-style football, and you can see how there could be an injury. So the, the, Chinese, uh, the Chinese are playing American-style football, and they're very good at it, and they think that it's been successful for them, and so they don't want to change. And you can understand that, but the English-style football players represented by American companies 
uh, they can get injured in this process. Now, if you only talk about buying missions and buying more products from, from China, that's kind of like the helmeted football player saying to the other team, don't worry, we know you don't have helmets and you're afraid of getting tackled, but we'll start the game and give you 20 extra points. See, buying more doesn't really address the underlying problem, and that's why you're hearing, especially from the USTR, an emphasis on the structural issues. That is, ways that the Chinese system is different that create uh, advantages that could be harmful to uh, industries in other countries. Well, what seems to be on offer right now is just buying more. That, uh, that's what we hear the most of, and that would be the easiest thing for the Chinese government to do. It would certainly be beneficial to uh, our soy farmers, to those who produce LNG. It's not a bad thing for China to buy more, but it doesn't really go to the heart of the problem. Though I wonder, um, if we do end up buying, uh, if we do in, end up selling more to the Chinese, and if, if we eliminate our, our actual trade deficit within a couple of years, as maybe some of the, the more optimistic proposals have suggested, what happens to our, our own? I mean, we have our, we've been running balance of payments problems for a very, very long time, uh, and China shows up reliably at the T-bill auctions to, to take care of the rest. Will that continue to happen if they're no longer running balance of payments surpluses? Ultimately, at the end of the day, a current account uh, surplus or deficit is determined by an imbalance or the balance between savings, uh, investment, and consumption. And it uh, is uh, really not affected by specific trade policies. Um, so I think that uh, uh, you're absolutely right. Focusing on the trade balance is probably the wrong indicator uh, to look at. Um, at the same time, um, there is the risk uh, that Tim pointed out, which I think is very real, very relevant, uh, very much on the table, that now is the time to deal with the structural issues uh, that foreign companies uh, face uh, in China. And I have to say, it's not only foreign companies in China, it's also the entire private sector in That's China, right. which is very large, growing very rapidly, uh, and indeed is producing all of the, the productivity growth uh, in China. These structural issues, addressing the structural issues now uh, would be a, a, a ter terrific way to ensure China's continued economic uh, sustainable success. These structural issues need to be um, address both for the sake of uh, foreign companies, uh, those uh, from those countries who signed an agreement under the WTO with China, but in addition, equally uh, for uh, Chinese private uh, sector firms who also are harmed by excessive state-owned enterprises, excessive and wasteful subsidies, uh, and the lack of intellectual property and other protections uh, in China. I'm confident that in these two days of negotiations, we should be able to solve all these structural issues. So. That uh, Xi Jinping will agree to completely uh, reverse course and change the entire nature of the Chinese economy. Right. Yeah. Well, let me, let me mention a couple of reasons why it might be a little bit harder than that. <laughs> um, uh, not only do we have to look at different economic policies in the two countries and figure out how we can make adjustments so that we can maximize the amount of economic engagement between the two countries, which is beneficial for all, all sides. But there are other uh, policy areas that also are being recalibrated now. One has to do with national security. Um, if you think about the old way that we dealt with national security, you had certain technologies that were sensitive, you walled them off from the rest of the economy by having investment restrictions and export controls on certain types of technology, but all the rest of the economy you could sort of have free trade and investment. But now, uh, 
there are many technologies that uh, have dual use application and they're, uh, they're prevalent across our economies. If you just think of your smartphone, the advanced semiconductors, the big data, the artificial intelligence, all those kinds of things, and we use them all across the economy, but they also, from a national security point of view, have uh, offensive uh, uh, applications, and they also create national security vulnerabilities. So walling this off uh, is much more difficult than it would be in the past. So right now, the U.S. is looking at expanding its export controls, expanding its uh, security review of inbound investments. And while this is being thought through, that's another factor besides the economic policies that are creating uncertainty for our business relationship. Yeah, and we'll get to that. I mean, I have a specific question about export controls. So, Craig, if I may um, change tack a little bit. Ordinarily, the board of the U.S.-China Business Council issues a joint statement each year. How significant was the fact that you skipped a year this time? Uh, it's been suggested to me that maybe there's some division <laughs> within the board. Uh, could you talk through some of the tensions within the board or, you know, not specifically the U.S.-China Business Council, but within the broader U.S. Uh, business community, the different attitudes and ideas of what should be done? So I am uh, relatively new to the U.S.-China Business Council and don't have the deep history. Um, but um, I think that uh, I, it would be fair to say that there is a great divergence of uh, opinion among the American business community uh, with regard to China. And uh, those uh, companies that are fully invested in China, particularly those on the consumer goods side, uh, who are selling uh, very large amounts of uh, product uh, to the Chinese are uh, actually, for the most part, quite happy uh, with uh, where they are. They see rapid growth. Uh, they see uh, tremendous opportunities uh, in the future. Those companies uh, that are uh, locked or frozen or blocked uh, from the Chinese market, including uh, many service companies or high-tech companies, have a different view. And uh, they wish uh, to get into the market, and they are hopeful that the Chinese will more robustly, uh, uh, generously impl implement their WTO um, obligations. So there's no secret uh, that there's a divergence, uh, a spectrum uh, of opinion about American companies uh, 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 concerning China, uh, and that um, uh, there are uh, different approaches uh, to this. Um, at the same time, um, I think that we would all agree that uh, a more level playing field uh, and more robust uh, implementation of the WTO uh, obligations would benefit everyone, including Chinese companies. So there is, uh, what within the divergence of opinion, there is, uh, I think, a core agreement that WTO implementation is necessary, uh, helpful, important, and the only way forward for a sustainable future. Tim, to what extent do you think that Beijing, and, and what I mean is Xi Jinping and his inner circle, to what extent do they recognize uh, how their policies have alienated and frustrated the U.S. business community, uh, which was really once a reliable pillar of support for sort of better U.S.-China ties, uh, and a ballast, really. Um, they, it served as, as very useful ballast in the bilateral relationship. To what extent does she realize the damage that he's done? Well, 
I think that senior Chinese leadership do realize that the mood of the business community has changed. Um, AmCham China does a business climate survey every year, and we started asking a few years ago the question of whether you feel uh, more or less welcome in China compared with previous years. We didn't even think to ask that question more than five years ago, but the answers have been pretty negative, you know, 75, 80% of the membership saying we feel less welcome than in the past. And I think that this, this message has gotten through and I think the Chinese government is trying to take some steps to make the foreign business community feel more welcome. Um, but the business community also, frankly, is a bit jaded because they've heard lots of promises in the past and, and it takes a while to prove that maybe things would be different now. So I think it still is a, there, there's a credibility gap that still needs to be addressed. And I also think that a lot of the things that have been offered up by the government have not necessarily addressed these core structural issues that we've been discussing. I think we all recognize and we've discussed today how technology-related issues, <clears throat> excuse me, how technology-related issues have moved to the center of U.S.-China frictions on a number of fronts, including and perhaps especially the business relationship. But not every American company is about technology, and some of the most profitable American companies, as you just mentioned, operating in China uh, are not technology companies. Procter & Gamble last week posted some pretty positive quarterly results, and their CEO said that demand in China was strong, and he was confident that it would continue growing. Um, and Matthews Asia's, Matthews Asia's investment strategist, Andy Rothman, who I admit I have yet to hear say a bearish thing about China, <laughs> but anyway, he did say he is still calling China the world's best consumer story. Um, Simon Rabinovich, correspondent for The Economist in Shanghai, recently noted on Twitter, uh, yes, China's 6.6% growth in 2018 is its slowest in nearly three decades, but given the size of the economy, that represents about 1.2 trillion of additional demand, nearly twice as much as it generated with 14% growth in 2007. So, you know, both in terms of the, 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 uh, how welcome American companies are feeling, but also the broader economic climate, are there happy stories from the U.S.-China business rela relationship at the moment that you can talk about to perhaps give me a little bit of hope that my children's world won't be worse than mine. <laughs> well, I think that there's a, a lot of room for uh, hope, and there are many positive uh, stories. Um, I, the best way to look at this is uh, perhaps not retrospectively, but prospectively. Uh, and uh, uh, according to a Bloomberg survey that I recently saw, over the next five years, China will produce uh, approximately 27% of the world's global growth. And uh, I think that looking at that, um, for any American company which is to be a successful global company, they need to be a successful company in China as well. You cannot be a successful global company unless you are successful uh, in China. Um, uh, given the amount of growth that China is going to give uh, the global economy. So uh, there are many uh, good stories out there of uh, American brands, American products, uh, uh, food and, and drink and uh, technology and fashion, uh, uh, automotive in every sector uh, where well, we have success stories. Um, 
but uh, I uh, will uh, agree completely with Tim that we're facing new challenges and that we're, it does appear that we're going up, uphill uh, or into the wind. And uh, we're hopeful, therefore, that the negotiations that uh, are going to be concluding uh, hopefully soon uh, will give us a, a, a fresh uh, burst of wind at our back this time uh, to make... Uh, uh, to, to change some of the, the negative perceptions that Tim referenced within the business community in China that is on the ground every day. One of the fresh challenges, uh, a few years old now, uh, and moving back to tech now, is of course the cybersecurity law, which went into effect last year. Uh, I had the great pleasure of talking with one of your uh, lawyers in Beijing, Luo Yen, uh, who is brilliant and, and really knows quite a bit about that. And hopefully some of that's rubbed off on you. I wanted to talk, talk to you about the implementation of the cybersecurity law. How onerous has it actually been uh, for American technology companies, data localization and all of these things? Has it really uh, risen to, to the threat that we had all been afraid it would? Well, I think it's it's still being rolled out in terms of its practical implication. A lot of the provisions of the of the law are pretty general. And, and how to apply them in a particular case is not very clear. Mm -hmm. And so often uh, you have to go and you need to have discussions with the regulators and talk about your own circumstances and see how the intentions of the law can be um, met uh, in, a practical, in a specific practical circumstance. I think um, uh, people are concerned about uh, whether you can transfer data outside of China and often it's critical to the way you do business uh, people are concerned about uh, whether their data will be kept secure. Uh, and this comes back to what I was saying a moment ago, and that is that I mean, China does have legitimate national security concerns about data. Uh, all countries do. And so trying to find the right balance uh, is not an easy thing for, for countries to do. And it's, it's an area where I think there's a great need for more dialogue and input between the private sector and government regulators because I think companies understand better than government officials do what is a solution that meets a legitimate national security need that actually would work in the real world. Can I throw in a little bit of uh, complexity there? Uh, oftentimes the best way to predict uh, what the, a Chinese government response will be uh, is organizational behavior. What's in the interest of that particular ministry? And in the case of the cybersecurity law, you have too many ministries, uh, and they all have different objectives. Uh, and sometimes those are uh, competing, sometimes they're complementary, sometimes they're contradictory. Uh, and uh, so that adds a degree of complexity for everyone uh, who are out there sincerely trying to meet their obligations under Chinese law. Sometimes that is very uh, difficult to understand and difficult to execute on. We interrupt this podcast for an important news bulletin. President Trump is actually meeting with Liu He right now. They just began uh, uh, with Vice Premier Liu. So... Uh, 
Here we are in the midst of history. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> okay, let's change subjects. I want to ask about something that I've been <clears throat> thinking about for a while. What is the holdup for American payments companies getting approved in China? I think in 1995, when I first went to Beijing, I heard that Visa and MasterCard were about to like get some kind of license. <laughs> you know? um, and maybe it's too late now because all Chinese people are using their phones, using Tencent and Alibaba products to pay. But what, is there a... What, Help me understand. <laughs> well, I think there are a number of factors. Um, I, I think that my best assessment is that you had a very strong Chinese state-owned enterprise that was developing a kind of a monopoly position, and I think that they had a lot of leverage and clout uh, in in, in uh, sort of a slowing down the, the implementation process for the foreign competing companies to come in. Now, there's a legitimate... A regulatory structure that needs to be put in place for credit card companies uh, and you have to have coordination between the People's Bank of China and the Banking uh, Regulatory Commission in terms of who has jurisdiction and how they should be dealing with the regulations but it's taken a huge amount of time and I think in the meantime you're absolutely right the competitive situation on the ground has has changed and it would be pretty daunting to get uh, to break into a market that now between uh, China Union Pay and the uh, and the online payment companies, uh, breaking into that will be very difficult. So, Craig, my sense is that whatever the outcomes of the uh, the ongoing trade talks, in the near term, we're still going to see, well, for example, these cases, these 23 indictments that were unsealed in the Western District of Washington and the Eastern District of New York against the company Huawei. But it's not just Huawei. It's a lot of other Chinese technology companies that are going to be coming in, in for this. Uh, is it your sense that the Trump administration is at this point pretty committed to technological decoupling. And what's your sense of how Beijing is going to respond to this? Are we going to see a lot of reciprocity? Well, as my old boss, Ambassador Stapleton Roy, used to say, if you want a quiet life, don't study China. <laughs> uh, um, I'm going to have that uh, tattooed on my hands. <laughs> uh, perhaps one could become a specialist in Liechtenstein or Luxembourg. Uh, so um, there is a uh, sense uh, that seems to be shared between uh, national security elites, both in Beijing and in Washington, that uh, that both countries are too interdependent uh, from a supply chain and a te technological uh, perspective. So this is not uh, only a, a uh, manifestation that we see in Washington through the multi-level protection scheme, through indigenous innovation. We see some um, actually quite similar uh, programs uh, in, in Beijing. Um, it is uh, clear uh, that uh, uh, a lot of new thought is going into our export control programs and to our investment regimes. And it is very likely that uh, the tightening up of both of those programs are going to have an effect on supply chains uh, and on uh, innovation. Um, and so uh, at least right now, uh, the trend line is towards uh, greater conflict uh, in this very important area. Nonetheless, I think it's worthwhile to take a step back, uh, take a step backwards and look at the last 40 years and appreciate how much has been accomplished 
by uh, U.S.-China collaboration in the innovation space. Um, a lot of products uh, could not be on the world market were there not very effective collaboration uh, between uh, the two countries. Uh, China is becoming a very innovative country in and of itself uh, if in Shenzhen or, or Hangzhou or, or Beijing. And so we need to be careful not to push uh, uh, this too far or we're going to hurt uh, global innovation and uh, that will hurt ourselves. So I... I recommend a caution as we proceed here uh, and not to push this uh, too far. That leads on to a question for both of you. Um, you know, a few weeks ago on the show, we had a guest who talked about one risk of decoupling is that it could create a, an innovation winter because if the U.S. wants to actually build supply chains that are currently in China, rebuild them in the United States, all of that investment is going, not going to be made in R&D. Therefore, there's going to be less innovation. How, do, does that, how does that argument strike the two of you? I think, it, I think it's possible. I think, you know, as I was commenting a moment ago, there's a lot of uncertainty for, for business right now. And we have the uncertainty because of changing economic policies that I sort of illustrate with the football analogy. We have the uncertainty because the rules about protecting national security are, are evolving. And the third policy area where we have uncertainty is law enforcement. If you have U.S. laws about uh, protection of IP or U.S. laws about um, money laundering or anti-corruption or trade sanctions directed at, at uh, Iran or North Korea, that's another area where the U.S. and China now are going through a recalibration. And some laws that may not have been enforced as vigorously against Chinese companies, I think the decision's being made that they are. But if we're going to arrive at a, a situation where the rules are clearer again for business, we're going to have to have a clear understanding of what is economic policy and what are the policies, what are the national security rules related to export controls and investment and so on, so that we know what innovation and technology we can still deal with. And we have to have a way of dealing with law enforcement that clearly separates law enforcement from trade policy, and from national security. If you blend those all together, then the policy complications become impossible to unravel, and you'll only have confusion and mistrust between the governments. So I, I think it's very important, if you talk about the, the current cases, you know, ZTE or Huawei or something, it's very important that they be approached by both governments as a law enforcement issue and not as a national security issue or as a trade policy issue. So. Technology is, put, is a tremendously positive-sum game. It's the most positive-sum game that there That's is right. in the world. Yeah. And uh, getting the rules of the road straight for bilateral technology cooperation is a critically important subject. Getting the rules of the road straight for technology competition is incredibly important. But perhaps even more important than both of those is how do you enforce those rules uh, in a equitable, fair, transparent manner? And uh, we need to do some work on this uh, because closing off or constricting uh, uh, innovation cooperation between our two countries is not going to make either of us uh, wealthier. Okay, for a final question, uh, this is supposed to be about a forecast for the year 2019. So let's do that. Let's 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 look at your how you uh, see this year playing out, the year of the pig. I mean, there are bright spots certainly, and maybe you can tell a couple of, of, of areas where you think that 
uh, American businesses are going to fare well? And what are the real uh, potential pitfalls? Um, I think I think we are going to have a period of of the two governments sort of realigning their rules with respect to economic policy, law enforcement, and national security. And I think it's going to take some time to do this because they're very complicated issues. And I don't think even if we have an agreement between the two countries, you know, at the end of this 90-day period, that it will resolve all the problems. And so I think we're still going to see actions in these three different policy areas that are going to make the business environment and the overall relationship uh, challenging and and uh, and and uh, somewhat problematic, but I am more optimistic that because of all the positive things that result between our two countries when we do learn to cooperate, that after we butted our heads against each other for a while, we'll come out in a, in a better place. But I think it's going to take a little bit longer than just one year. I think it could take uh, three, four, five years even. Craig. So uh, we are uh, certainly at an inflection point uh, in the bilateral relationship. Um, that said, uh, both economies, I think, are in relatively good shape. Uh, the American economy is blessed with a 3.7% uh, unemployment rate, uh, relatively rapid growth. The Chinese economy is steady um, and uh, will... Uh, expand 6.2% or so uh, in 2019. And so both economies are doing reasonably uh, well. Uh, my hope is that both uh, governments will be able to congeal around uh, the rules that they have both formally agreed to under the WTO and find common ground uh, in the technology space, uh, in um, the trade and in investment space. That's certainly possible. There are many other very positive indicators out there that both governments uh, should refer to. I think that the um, the uh, the TPP uh, coming into force among good friends and neighbors and trading partners uh, by both China and the United States is a wonderful uh, phenomenon. Uh, my understanding is that in addition to the 11, 13 other countries have raised their hands. And how could that be anything but an extremely positive uh, thing for regional stability? So, uh, yes, uh, there is plenty of tensions, and sometimes I worry that we're lacking the bumpers or the guardrails uh, uh, in the relationship to keep us on a steady course. Uh, but ultimately, it is in both countries' interests uh, to expand trade and investment, and I have no doubt uh, that we're going to figure out the way there. But it might be a bumpy road. Indeed. Craig Allen, Tim Stratford, I want to thank you both so much. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you here. Uh, we look forward to having you both on the show again. Let's go on to the recommendations segment of our show. Share with us a book or a film or a website or a TV show or an article or a travel destination or a favorite hole in the wall or just anything you think that our listeners would benefit from. Jeremy, why don't you go first? What do you have for us this week? Okay, I recently became an American citizen, and I'd like to yeah. recommend the civics test learning materials online for any American who needs a refresher course. <laughs> um, but I'd also like to uh, abuse the privilege of this podium and plug my wife's uh, premiere of her new, she's a composer and she has written a work called Hello Gold Mountain based on stories of Jews in Shanghai, in wartime Shanghai who fled Europe and found refuge there. And it, it will premiere in Nashville, Tennessee on February 23rd, if any of you is near the South at that time. 
and absolutely incredible. Okay, who's ready? Craig, you ready? So uh, I um, <clears throat> would recommend Francis Fukushima's new book, uh, Identity. I think that it's Fukuyama. Uh, uh, very you good. Really get it. Say it again. Francis Fukuyama, so I don't have to. Oh, forgive me. Francis Fukuyama's uh, uh, book, Identity, I think it's a very good exploration of uh, class versus identity politics and where we should come out on that. Uh, I think he's a wonderful uh, thinker and has really contributed uh, to the debate in, in my country uh, in a profound manner. I like this idea of of us sort of rallying behind these American civic virtues as sort of a form of our, you know, an expression of our patriotism. I, I think that was amply on display in, for example, the Democratic National Convention in, in 2016 and in Kamala Harris's uh, uh, announcement speech. I think that was, uh, I, those make me tear up, these things, when I hear American civic I may, virtues. I'm not American enough know. yet for that. But I, not, I, not yet. I, It'll I, happen I, to you soon. <laughs> Also, I mean, but I think that the yeah, uh, naturalization ceremony is another thing I would recommend. It, uh, I'm not somebody who likes ceremonies, but it, was, it made me cry. It was so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When my parents were naturalized, uh, I remember I, I came to the door, the, the doorbell rang uh, the day that they had been naturalized, and the whole neighborhood had turned out with flags and drums, and they, they paraded us around the neighborhood. It was amazing. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> anyway, um. <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, uh, Fukuyama, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I think that, that political order, or the origins of political order and political order and political decay were two of the best books on, on, uh, the, on states and understanding states that I, I have ever read. Those Ident are, Identity is a sequel. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, Tim, what do you have for us? Well, I've been reading too much in, in my own field to have a, such an interesting recommendation, but I will say that I think... Um, the best short article that I've read on the U.S.-China trade relationship uh, is one that was published by CSIS just within the last week or two, uh, authored by uh, Scott Kennedy and Dan Rosen. Um, and so I'd recommend that. I thought it was a very fair and, and uh, very accurate, insightful presentation. So that's, that's something you can read in 10 minutes if you don't have time to read the books and if you can't make it to Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> or on your way there. Excellent, excellent. Uh, um, I'm going to recommend the new podcast by John Drew. You remember John? We had him on the show before. Right. Um, he, he, it's this time he's done the water That's margin. Drew Z H U, not right. G E W J E W. Z H U. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, his new podcast is called The Water Margin: Outlaws of the Marsh. Uh, John, he lives in my neck of the woods in Durham, North Carolina. He did an amazing job in this sort of vernacular retelling of my favorite Chinese uh, novel, which is Sanguo Yayi, uh, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Uh, it's just a whole ton of fun. He puts in a lot of really modern Americanisms, and uh, he was a sports writer, so he writes very colorfully. And he, he, it's it's just a terrific thing. I, I just admire people who put something out into the world uh, out of sheer goodness. And his retelling of the water margin so far has been an absolute delight. I highly recommend it. You can find it if you just uh, search for water margin on the iTunes store or outlawsofthemarsh.com where you can actually read the transcripts and you can see all the other information that he has, supplemental materials. Uh, he just did a supplemental episode about the origins of the game football. Uh, it's, it's excellent. He does some, some good research on that. Okay. So uh, once again, uh, Tim and Craig, it's just been a delight. Thank you so much for having us here today at the U.S.-China Business Council. Uh, here's wishing everyone a very, very happy year of the pig, and uh, thank you very much.
Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Special thanks this week to the great people here at Covington and Burling and to the U.S. China Business Council. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the other great podcasts in our Seneca network, including the brand new Middle Earth podcast about China's culture industry. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care. 